Provocations are our favorite. We're going to start it out uh, with a provocation, the one we've been planning the longest. We're so excited. Molly Woodstock and Cassius Adair. Oh, yeah, we'll celebrate your name. Okay, hi, I'm Cass. Hi, I'm Molly. I really want to start with a moment of gratitude for this space. Um, I've been listening to NPR since I was a little, little kid in the back of my parents' Volvo station wagon, and I just have spent so much time dreaming of the day that I would get to stand in front of all of you and yell about being a professional transsexual. Uh, and similarly, uh, I've been thinking about this since I went to my first audio conference, which was not Third Coast. It was this conference that's billed as being really with it about gender, but failed to ever acknowledge that trans people exist in any way. And I got so angry there that I made an entire podcast about gender out of spite, and it's now in its fifth season. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, and like, it's a joke, but it's also not a joke at all. Because like I said, I make a podcast about gender and specifically I make a podcast about trans people. And the questions that I, as a trans person, ask other trans people about gender sound really different than the questions that almost all cis people ask trans people about gender. So for example, um, I was recently talking to Lewis Wallace. I was gonna have a clip, but we lost it. So I'm just gonna read it to you. Mm -hmm. I was talking to Lewis Raven Wallace, shout out to Lewis. And I asked mm -hmm. Lewis, um, <laughs> So I'm a queer trans biracial person and these things are inherently political. I would love if being trans wasn't political, but other people have decided to make it a political issue. And so given that my existence is inherently political, how can I possibly work for a mainstream media organization without ceding my right to defend my own existence? And if I can't, does that mean that trans people and other historically marginalized folks aren't allowed in media? So that's a type of question that I ask on my show. Um, we talk about decolonization a lot, that's another thing. Here's a question that someone asked a trans person named Sarah McBride recently. Um, do you ever wear pants? So that was, um, do you ever wear pants? <laughs> and that's the question that it felt appropriate to ask Sarah McBride, former state, or sorry, future state representative. Yeah, um, you shouldn't ask people what, what pants or not pants they wear. <laughs> it's irrelevant. Um, but wait. You might say, my show is not about gender. This provocation does not apply to me. And um, our first point is that you're wrong about that. Um, and, but the way we wanted to think about this is that all stories have the potential to be transphobic stories if you talk about gender at all. If you are talking about human bodies or families or like life experience in any way, you may be talking about gender, and so you may be accidentally transphobic. And what if you refer to anyone with any pronouns literally at any time, but you like didn't ask them about that and how they feel about that, that might be a transphobic thing that you did. Um, so yeah, if you're like telling a story, you're telling a story about gender, and you have the opportunity to make it a trans-inclusive story or a trans-exclusionary story. Um, and this is really important for lots of reasons, like being a good person, but one of the reasons is that anyone you talk to for your story could be trans. And that's really good because trans people are fucking awesome. Um, but, but you may think that you'll be able to tell who is trans, um, but you can't do that. You can't know who is trans. Literally anyone could be trans. You could all be trans. You could figure out you're trans in like 2035 amongst the smoldering ruins of what was once the city of Chicago and is now the nation's largest guerrilla war to control the freshwater reserves of Lake Michigan. That's when we're all figuring out we're trans. Um, you could already know you're trans, but be hiding it because being trans sucks really bad sometimes, and we're trans and everyone 
um, in our family is upset with us sometimes and people ask us dumbass questions at work on a daily basis. So don't assume you don't have trans listeners or trans coworkers. Trans people are all around you and they're not aliens. Which brings us to our next point, which is that trans people are not aliens. Um, <laughs> we all know about the explanatory comma. Shout out to Code Switch for explaining the explanatory comma. Yeah, also, Moonface for explaining the explanatory comma. Yes. Also, shout out to code switch for being consistently great about trans people. I really appreciate yes. you all. Um, so people in radio do wild explanatory commenting around trans topics all of the time. It never stops. It happens so often that this explanatory comma thing happens that I actually did a tweet about it that I'm going to read. It says trans reporter writing about a non-binary person. They drink coffee. Cis reporter writing about that person. The person who prefers to identify as gender non-binary despite being assigned female at birth and who uses the gender neutral pronouns they and them drank coffee. And this tweet did pretty well. And so this apparently whole people- This provocation <laughs> is about this slide. I'm good at Twitter, everyone. Come follow me. Um, and so, uh, no, but like this is the most popular tweet I've ever had, which I think speaks to like how many trans people and cis people are frustrated with this happening. And in fact, I got- hundreds of replies pointing out that this was actually too optimistic because usually cis people would say something like, she prefers they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Oh, I'm so sorry. I ruined a joke. Oh no. We're going to make a joke about Kiki Palmer. And here it is. Um, <laughs> this has happened so many times to so many different people and it has happened to me. And I was on NPR recently and I was introduced as Molly identifies as non-binary and uses the pronoun they and theirs. And I know it's privileged to complain about how I was introduced on NPR, but if anywhere I can do it, it's here. <laughs> and um, it made me feel really alienated and really othered uh, because you know that no one would introduce any cis person on NPR, for example, Kiki Palmer, <laughs> as Kiki Palmer identifies as a woman and uses the pronouns she and hers. We just say Kiki Palmer is a an actress best known for saying sorry to this man to Dick Cheney. Here's your slide. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the explanatory comma indicates what we think is assumed knowledge that we all have for living in a society and what we think is this extra bonus knowledge that we don't actually think that our listeners should know or need to know. And right now, trans people are being put squarely in this box of we don't expect you to know about them we don't think you need to know about them, but just in case, here's this extra comment that, by the way, is usually wrong. When cis people try to clarify stuff about trans people, it's usually wrong. And so instead, we want to get to a part where trans people are just people moving through the world, and we assume that we know how to interact with them on a basic level. Because we all have an obligation to learn this as a society. As reporters especially, we have an obligation to learn how to talk to trans people like they're human beings worth of basic respect and dignity. Because the truth is that trans people aren't a trend for teens like jeweling and TikTok. They have been here for thousands of years in different iterations around time and space. Yeah, I also want to point out that drooling is much more dangerous than hormones. We know that now because of science. Yeah. Um, Thank you. So keep your kids away from vaping, but it's fine if they're trans, it's good. Um, <laughs> um, but we want to say that we get it and that gender is very complicated and the language that we use around gender is always evolving and like half the time I say stuff and then like people who are 18 and very online think that I'm very wrong and so we get that that's like super real about gender. So we have exactly one suggestion about how to deal with that, which is this. Um, For the folks at home, 
hire trans people. We are good at our jobs. We are good at our jobs. Um, and we want to just say that there are so many trans people who would love to work with you. There are many at this conference right now. There are trans people all over the media world who cannot break into audio but would like to. And we want to play some of their voices for you. So, um, shh. I'm Arno. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm a trans femme mixed race journalist. I'm Ollie Adlington. I use he, him, and I'm a trans audio producer. My name is Patrick Jem Gavin. I use they, them pronouns, and I am a disabled, non-binary, transmasculine student journalist. I'm Emily Vanderwerf. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a white trans woman critic at Vox.com. Hello, my name is A.E. Osworth. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a transgender novelist. I am Rocket. I use she, her pronouns. I am a black trans woman, photographer, filmmaker, and voice actress. I'm Meredith Tuisen. My pronouns are she, her, they, them. I am a Filipino-American, first-generation immigrant, trans, non-binary, albino, disabled, POC, journalist, author, memorist, and overall rabble-rouser. My name is Morgan Givens. I'm a black trans man, a producer with NPR's 1A, and the creator of Flyest Fables. There are also a lot of other trans people who are here and who aren't here that we didn't shout out in this video. Uh, come no, find us, come find them. Also, there's a thread on Twitter where I just asked people to promo themselves uh, recently and you can find that. Yeah, um, we're really excited to share as many trans voices with you as possible and we wanna keep that happening forever. Um, but if you cannot at this moment like spend all of your hiring budget to hiring trans people like these folks, which you should, but if you can't do that, or if you wanna make sure that your workplace is a good place for trans people when you do hire them, which we think is a good idea, then you should, um, you should pay us money to do this. And that means you should pay all trans people for the labor of explaining trans things to you. Um, giving money to trans people is really good. You should all try it. It feels awesome. And if you feel like guilty or weird about your journalistic practice, this is the way to never feel bad about yourself again. It's giving it to trans people directly. Mm -hmm. um, you should do yeah. it. Yeah. And if your company will not pay for uh, you to have a full training with they should, you can just out of your own pocket with your good sis money, just give us a little bit of money and we'll tell you a lot of our secrets. Yes. It's like actually your responsibility. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, obviously this applies to a lot of different marginalized people. We're just like pro-marginalized people getting paid for their time. And explaining how your stories are bad for them is time and labor and it should be compensated. This is yes. my plug, yes. So in conclusion, just to recap, all stories are stories about gender, Anyone can be trans. Trans people are not aliens except for Alf. Except for Alf. And the secret to making better radio is to hire trans people. And not just to tell trans stories, but for all stories, because we are good at our jobs. Good at our jobs. Bye! Hi everybody, I am not Rampton. He is on a plane right now, in the air or on a tarmac or some someplace, some, somewhere. So I'm sorry that he's not here. Um, but I am Martine Powers. Um, I am the host of a podcast called Post Reports, which is a daily news podcast from the Washington Post. It's like a little bit like the Daily, except sometimes we do stories about the Backstreet Boys. So. Um, and I'm here because I have a declaration to make. 
I am tired of pretending that I like everything that I make. Sometimes I make things that are bad. And I think that we should all feel more free to talk about our badness. So this is a thing that I think about pretty acutely because working on a daily podcast, you just like make so many things. Um, and I, in particular, as a host, like have a hand in making a lot of things. And to be clear, so many of the things that we make are excellent and I'm so proud of our team and the things that we make and, and my role in that. But sometimes I listen back to my things, like either stories that I produced or a, a story idea that I really pushed, or a question that I asked, or like some script that I wrote, and I'm just like, that was not good. Like it was, it was not what I needed it to be. And I feel like we should be able to talk about that more. Because when I do have conversations about like being frustrated with something, oftentimes they are sort of a version of this, which is where someone's like, oh, that was so good. And you're like, oh no, I just, I don't feel real that great about it. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? You're crazy, you're amazing. And that is a great conversation to have sometimes with your friends and your mom. My mom is very good at having this conversation. Um, but I also feel like it is that you, well, I, I wanna add a caveat first, that I, I do think it's really important to have people who are supportive in your life and telling you how amazing you are. And especially if you are a woman, a person of color, a woman of color, this world makes you feel like shit a lot of the time. And so it is helpful to have people who want to bring you up and, and make you feel good. But I also feel like you should have people in your life that you can be like, this thing didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out and I wanna talk very clearly and straightforwardly about why that didn't happen. Um, and what I'm talking about here is not like false modesty because everybody finds that irritating when you're like, oh, it's so bad, please tell me how great I am. I'm talking about very real, genuine discussions about criticism and self-reflection. Uh, my model in having these very uh, forthright conversations about badness is Serena Williams. Um, she is amazing, if you did not know. and. One thing about tennis, which if you watch tennis, you will know this, is that if you play a tennis match, like a very famous one, and you lose, after you lose, you still have to like go up to a podium and tell everyone about how bad you were. And like reporters will ask you, like, why were you so bad? Like, tell me all the different ways you were bad. Like, was it this way that you were bad or was it this other way that you were bad? Um, and they just have to answer this question. So this is basically what you will hear in this clip that I think might be a little bit quiet, but basically this reporter in the background is like, but you were so bad this time, and you were even worse the time before. This is after the US Open. If the moment is tough. Uh, uh, you say that you didn't play your best, and for sure you didn't, especially on per percentage of per serve. Uh, uh, some double for some believable in wrong moments, but, uh, you came out to losing to uh, Kerber, Posaka, and Alep in the finals. And there you played really bad, I think. Today, well, so so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly. And I, I just love that she just like takes that all in stride. But I, but it's, it's a situation where like no one is gonna go up there and bullshit her and tell her that she played really well. She's a professional tennis player. She knows what it's like to play well. She knows what it's like to play poorly. And the way that she's able to talk about that in a really straightforward way, I think is pretty admirable. It's, it's really hard right now to take that moment in and to, to say, um, you did okay. Because I don't believe I did, you know? And I believe I could have played better and I believe I could have done more and I believe that I could have, um, 
just been a better, been more Serena today. And I don't honestly don't think Serena showed up. And I have to kind of figure out how to get her to show up in Grand Slam finals. So props to Serena for being so honest in, full of, in front of a room full of strangers. Um, but this kind of clear-sightedness about your badness, I think that it can be a secret superpower. Because I think that when you make something that you know didn't quite meet your expectations, uh, that didn't, wasn't everything that you wanted it to be, you can, you're like overwhelmed with this feeling of just wanting to run away from it. Just wanting to be like, I just never want to listen to that again. I just want to put it in a box. I hope nobody else heard it. And not really wanting to engage with it. But I think that if you take it as an opportunity to figure out what went wrong, it can be really empowering to, to talk about why it was bad, how it was bad, how you can make it better next time. And to take the thing and just like crack it open and try to figure out the secret to its badness. Because that is also how you figure out the secret to goodness. Um, so here at Third Coast, I know that we're here celebrating a lot of really great audio, Reply All episodes that made us like fill with wonder and Radiolab episodes that made us want to cry. Um, I think it's also important to have conversations about things that were bad and to talk really openly about those things and to ask questions like, or to, to make comments like, I'm trying to figure out why it didn't work. Looking back, I think I know where things went off the rails. I want to know how I can make this better next time. But those are the kinds of conversations that you can really embrace and learn from. Because when you look at your badness without being afraid, that's finally when you can start to be good. Thank you. Hello, you can hear me? Great to be here, thanks for having me. And what an honor to be able to share something that has been bugging me with a room full of people who could collectively perhaps, if not solve this problem, start to chip away at it. And that's where we come to uh, the subject of my five-minute mini-speech, a rapid-fire bias check. And I heard that it's useful to start with a definition. That's bias. No, it's not. It's not? It used to be different now. It's always changing. And elusive. It's a project we're all working on. I got five minutes, so I'm going to use this time to talk about a few specific examples that are general buckets that I find could be useful to discuss with this room of people who make the audio that I listen to. And uh, I would like to keep listening to it and not have to change the dial from time to time. So here we go. We're going to stir the pot a little bit. It is a provocation, of course. But it's not just something that I was thinking. I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy that this thing that I was hearing, which another title for this talk could be that thing that white hosts do sometimes when they're talking to people not like themselves or about people not like themselves. So I ran it by the People of Color Brain Trust and uh, I found out that it happens all the goddamn time. And uh, I was affirmed. So we will talk about a few examples. I, I reached out, I, I trawled the internet and asked if uh, some people had some examples. I picked a couple that uh, I thought were pretty salient. 
And one of them is, uh, would we have to, this is a story about a prison escape, would we actually have pointed out that these guards are female? Would they have said two male guards? A recent episode of a show called Hidden Brain mentions an American talking about, asking an American to think about a mosque being built, the subtext being a white American. The American isn't Muslim. And this uh, third example I just wanted to touch on briefly because I think it happens also all the goddamn time. I went down to the south side, out to Kansas, up to Maine, referring to the place that we are and the, the, the host is and signaling to the audience that they are not from there. And collectively, it can feel, well, it stings a little bit. It makes you think sometimes maybe it's not, the story is not for you. So I wanted to zoom in on three examples in particular. Okay, I need a, a host. Can I get a host? I think I'm the host. You may recognize this voice from earlier in the program. <laughs> Were you the first person in your family to go to college? No. Really? I had an uncle who went to Ohio State. So it wasn't like a big symbolic thing for you to go? Well, it was a big economic problem for me to go. <laughs> Thank you, host. You're welcome. And this is a type of bias that I, it's like, these are all kind of subtle examples. It's not like somebody's dropping the N-bomb in the middle of an interview. This is just inserting your bias about where somebody is from and their upbringing. And Toni Morrison is being quite gracious in this interview. But I don't think the interviewer needs to inter inter inject a heightened drama. And I think it's like sometimes when you're looking for, it would have still been a great interview if Toni Morrison didn't go to, wasn't the first person in her family to go to college, but we were trying to heighten the drama. And sometimes when we do that, we inject our bias about where this person is coming from. And there was a series of like these moments throughout this interview. I, I was looking forward to listening to this remembrance, and I thought it undercut the potency and meaningfulness, it just, and it felt stilted and awkward and choppy. Here's another one. I'm calling this one the fake familiar. Can I get a host? So you grew up in NYC in the Bronx in a moment where the Bronx was synonymous with urban decay and failure, bonfire of the vanities. But your life was not particularly difficult or squalid, was it? Uh, I think this is, this is a time where the host is actually trying to be like familiar and knowing and understanding about where Kerry uh, Washington grew up and uses this like really stereotypical, leans into it. And I think this is in the same vein of uh, fake familiarity that lends to uh, sometimes using language that you would not be comfortable with uh, outside of your zone to sound, and it, it, to sound more intimate and knowing, and I think it ends up sounding stiff and awkward. Kerry Washington, very generously responds. Uh, it's, 
you know, I went to private school in Manhattan, but the Bronx is not just one thing. It doesn't have to be the shithole that is summarized in the question. Now let's go international. Can I get a host? Nearly 400,000 Muslims have fled Myanmar in recent weeks. How could a small Southeast Asian country celebrated by the United States as a good news story of transition to democracy now be condemned by the United Nations as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing? Take me back to 2012. Why does President Obama visit this tiny country of Myanmar? This is in keeping with the, the directional example that we saw earlier in, the, in, a, in a tweet, and I thought that it was a subtle thing that could have just like washed by you unless you had some understanding of this region of the world and like it, your ears perked up because Myanmar is not exactly small or tiny, but in the two sentences that introduce this story, it diminishes it and in fact, uh, maybe from uh, where the host is sitting in a studio in New York, it seems very far away and small. But actually, Myanmar, 53.37 million people, similar in size, actually, to the United Kingdom. And I don't think we would hear a host refer to that place as a tiny island nation in the North Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so let's talk a few solutions. It's not just problems here. And one of the things, and this is really a, a tough thing to do, but worthwhile, and I was calling it bulletproof against bias. Whenever I work for an investigative show, and when, before we put out a story, we take like an adversarial position against every line that we have in a story, taking it from the point of view of like a lawyer who might be suing us for any infraction or error. And I think that's something that we could do for this particular problem of bias. It doesn't have to be just for investigative. Try to take the point of view of somebody with a different position and vet your questions and copy. And perhaps we could lead to reduced errors and moments where the radio feels like it's hitting you in the face. Here's another elegant example I thought that uh, was shared to me by a third coast staffer, Linnea. Uh, and the host asks a question. Uh, Imani Perry says, I'm tired of that question. And instead of being uh, evasive or dodging, she, the host says, if the question I ask you isn't a good question, I ask you, tell me the question you do want to engage. I'm not saying that we could do this for you're having an adversarial interview with an elected official. They don't get to answer the question that they want to. But if you're getting to know somebody in an arts and culture forum show, I think that's a, an elegant way to respond to somebody who doesn't want to engage that question. Solutions. Here's another one. We could close our bias by perhaps <laughs> hiring more people with different perspectives. This is a good idea I learned here last year. You know, I was making this on the bus ride down here, and I meant to end with something funny, but I think if we earn it, maybe next year, funny gift. <laughs>
provocations. We are going to go into the second half, technically, of provocations now. Um, I do want to give you a heads up that the second to last provocation, uh, which features Janie Williams, she made a podcast called This Happened that was one of the most impactful works we heard this year, and we are so thrilled to have her. Um, and her provocation involves conversation about sexual assault. So if you want to take a breather during that provocation, she's coming up after Liza Yeager. Um, feel free to, to go into the hallway um, and do something else. Just wanted to give you that heads up now. Um, but we're going to keep rolling with the one and only Tom Howell. Hello, can we play the clip number one, please? It's a quiet one. Okay, here we go. Good. Uh, I, I'm mostly here to pass along some advice I got when I was very stuck recently um, on an idea. I uh, bought this towel, it's a Turkish style of towel, um, from this man, his name's Aristides, and uh, uh, here he is explaining how you use it. Uh, can we play the next clip? Another one coming from clip number two. One of the biggest advantages of a Turkish towel. I'll demonstrate. You can patch yourself dry. When you patch yourself dry, your skin will be dry, but you still have a tingling, refreshing feeling because your pores are hydrated. I came out of his store uh, an hour and a half later, not just because he was repeating the same, <laughs> but um, because he had so much to tell me about this towel and all its qualities and, and the, the wider world beyond it. And um, I came away feeling like uh, I love this towel, but I also love this man. So I went back, as you can see, and I bought more towels. Um, the towel cost $50 each to $80. Actually, the brown one was $80. Um, but uh, this is where I started to run into obstacles in my life. Uh, my girlfriend hates the towels. Um, she had just moved in with me. We were both freelancers, and she didn't understand why I had spent $500 now on these towels. Um, <laughs> She was concerned. Um, my argument, uh, it's a pretty towel. Her argument is functional, utilitarian. It doesn't dry her. It doesn't work. So I was like, great, I got a story now. It's conflict. I went to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and I got rejected, um, which is you know, depressing for any of us. And especially when I cared so much, I felt like there was magic here. Um, so I took the good advice, and these are some of my notes. I just sort of was trying to narrow down the focus question. But the more I narrowed it down, the more it just seemed to like to disappear in my hands, like trying to grab sand. It was, I was feeling quite depressed. I went and I saw my friend AC Rowe, who works at a show called The Dark Project. Um, and she gave me the advice that I'm here to pass along to you. She suggested that uh, what I had on my hands here was not a documentary so much as a documentary that was also a musical, um, which was a beautiful example, I think, of raising the stakes when your stakes are super low. So um, I initially didn't react well. I said Aristides. I mean, I think he has a great voice for radio, but as far as I know, he's not a singer. But AC said, uh, you really should try and do this. So I went back to my notes again, and uh, I just looked for those moments when Aristides became so lyrical about the towels that it really sounded like he might be about to burst into song, and then I just did it for him. So this is uh, clip number four, if you can play that. 
That's one of the biggest advantages of a Turkish town. You can pat yourself dry. When you pat yourself dry, your skin will be dry, but you still have a tingling, refreshing feeling because your pores are hydrated. We get so used to not having that feeling. So on. I was pretty sure I had a hit on my hands as soon as I composed Pat Yourself Dry. And it was a great thing. For, I could then go through all my other clips and find ones that just seemed like they uh, deserve to be turned into musicals. And as I was doing it, it struck me that this is such a grand tradition of musicals where uh, they take very low stakes and somewhat elevate them, as Richard Wagner did with The Ring Cycle, if you know it. It's 15 hours long and there's no story. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so the reason I am up here today is to perform for you uh, what I sort of uh, also had to do after I turned my clips into music, which was to take my narration and just kind of work it into rhyming couplets um, and arrange it for solo voice and choir. So I've got a choir that's going to come up and help me with this. And we can play uh, clip number five, please. Am I wet? Is there some way I can tell? Should I regret that I'm so easy to upsell? Am I just another sucker buying things that I don't need? Just a fool in a consumeristic culture based on greed? Am I wet? How do I know? I forget. Am I wet? And the chorus suggests other people care about the same question. Is he wet? How could somebody not know? Would you bet that a simple test will show him that a towel not so dearly and acquired at such expense doesn't do the job it's meant to? Is he wet? How could somebody not get when he's wet? Not sure, I don't know yet. Am I wet? So, um, Thank you. Thank you very much to the choir. Uh, I don't know, use it, don't use it, uh, but next time you're stuck on a story, perhaps it's because there's a musical inside it waiting to get out, and if you decide there is, your stakes will suddenly be much higher. Um, thank you. Hello. I'm Irisa Pintaku. And I'm Jenny Casas. And before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the stolen land we're on. Over 12 different tribal nations make ancestral claims to the Chicagoland area. These nations include the Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Miami, Kickapoo, Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi. And thank you to the American Indian Center of Chicago for actively combating the modern day erasure of the genocide of indigenous peoples. I'm making a short radio piece about decolonizing desire, and I've been interviewing my queer POC friends about their own experiences desiring whiteness. I was one of those interviews. And during the setup, Erissa laid out the ground rules for how she was gonna use my tape. After we do the conversation, if you're like, I actually don't want you to use this, I'm gonna delete it. If I use part of this interview in the piece, I'm gonna send it to you before I send it to my editor. And if you're like, Actually, I don't want you to use this part. It's out. And my reaction was, what the fuck? Basically, what I'm saying is you have ownership over your voice and your ideas. Yeah. 
But all I could think was, does your editor know about this? <laughs> she did not. <laughs> I feel like the people I interview don't owe me their story, so if they want things out, I should cut them. Okay, this might be a silly question to ask at Third Coast, but who here has ever done an interview? Raise your hand. Okay, keep your hands raised if you've ever offered to share your tape with the source before running the story. Keep your hands raised if you would delete tape if your source asked you to. Okay, hands down. I actually love this idea, but in the newsrooms where I've learned how to make audio, it is not okay to let sources dictate their quotes. There's ethical concerns, conflicts of interest. It's too many cooks in the kitchen of my story. Not to mention if the source is a politician or a person with very obvious power. Yeah, of course I wouldn't give someone with so much power in society that chance. But everyday people... But I don't think power is that simple. Power changes based on specific contexts that we can't fully understand. I just think it's less risky when we are not the arbiters of who does or who doesn't get to hear their cuts before the story runs. True. We talk about this a lot, and we ask each other questions as a way to think more critically about what we do and why. Erissa and I are really sweet friends, but... We make audio with really different frameworks and goals. I'm a reporter. I work for WNYC, and most of my audio practice has happened in newsrooms with reporting standards that have been passed down, for better or worse, for decades. And I'm a person who records things. Right now, I'm making personal audio projects where I'm not constricted by anything beyond my own morals and ethics. Despite these differences, we agree on two things. One, most audio storytelling is inherently extractive. And two, we are both committed to making work that is least extractive. And tonight, we want to remind you that you are not a rig and stories are not oil. You know what I'm talking about. We take people's stories, we throw them together, and often we think our job stops there. But it doesn't have to be that way. Here are some things I don't think we ask ourselves enough. How often are you assessing and acknowledging your power as a media maker? Do you think about your work as a service? To whom? Is the hunt for a juicy story driven by the desire to feed your reputation as an audio maker at conferences like this? What does your story mean to the people whose voices you collect on mic? But it's not just about being least extractive. It's about being most generative. My boo, Katie Sage, introduced me to this idea. Just because maybe I'm curating this story or this presentation doesn't mean I am having the ultimate say over how it goes. It's really being present with the process and saying, what can this look like? How can we build this together? For me, a generative audio practice means I don't actually care as much about the end product as I do the process. This is Jade, a person I interviewed for the Decolonizing Desire piece. At the end of our conversation, we had this exchange. Is there anything else you want to add? I don't think so. Do you have any more questions? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have anything else you, you want more questions? Kind of. <laughs> this has been a fun conversation. Yeah, this is the longest I've talked with anybody about the topic. 
and I've discovered some things, but also I'm, I'm just like sort of finally giving voice to the things that I've known about myself for a long time. Yes, I extracted from Jade. I am using the things she told me for a radio piece that adds to my resume and pays me. But I've made her more of a collaborator in the process, and from an emotional standpoint, that felt better for both of us. But if showing your cuts to sources ahead of time makes you queasy, there are other ways to generate with your sources. Like asking, is there something you can make that isn't just a story, but is a resource for the people you're talking to? Like a zine. Or a database. Or an archive. Another thing you should ask yourself, what do your participants or sources think of your story? Are you committed to actually listening to their feedback? You're creating a story with other people, not just about them. We know you can't always change the historically harmful systems that you have to work with, but we do want to encourage you to question them and maybe decide to dismantle the ones you can control. Also, these ideas should be something you're always evaluating, thinking about, and changing. So here are some takeaways we're going to hammer into your brain. Slow down. So many of the extractive decisions we make are born from urgency. Acknowledge the power you hold and try to spread it around. Think about what this story means for the people who are in it. Are you helping create something they want? Just because it's juicy doesn't mean you should make a story about it. Check your intentions. Practice generation in your personal life. For example, ask your loved ones what they need and tell them what you need. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Liza. I'm going to start with something that a friend of mine said to me the other day. It's crazy that, like, I'm probably not going to work in radio considering it's, like, all I really want to do. I'm just going to leave that there for a little bit. We will get back to it. A lot of my best friends are in their first few years of working in radio. So they're just starting to freelance full-time, or they're doing their first real office jobs, or they are long-term temps. That's what I'm doing right now. Um, and those are the people that I call when I want to remember why I care about making radio. They just have really big and inspiring ideas for what radio can and should sound like. But lately, when I talk to my friends about their work, I hear a lot of stories that make me feel really worried. So this is a friend who just finished up her first real job. She was producing a show for a big network, and it was just her and two hosts on the show. Often when I would bring my own ideas to the table, I felt like they were shut down really quickly, as opposed to them having to step outside their comfort zone and imagine how something could be done differently. Like I kind of checked out a little bit, like I knew how to do a good job and what my hosts would like. Like I just sort of was like, okay, well you don't really want me for my brain. You want me to be an extension of your brain, you know? Um, okay, this next one is a friend who's still in college and they just published their first story on a big podcast, which should be a really, really exciting thing, but I feel like I like kind of regret it a little bit because it's just like, yeah, this weird explaining blackness to like what I know is a mostly white audience. Like, I don't know. 
Last example for now, um, this is a friend who's mostly worked on news desks, but she has other ideas. It's like, I'm not even pitching it. I'm just like thinking of it. I'm like, oh, well, to pitch it, like that would be just like weird. Like, I don't think that there's even like a space for that or I just am dumb and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. Or I don't know. Maybe there is a space and I just like I'm not confident and I feel weird about even trying. Okay, so maybe you're hearing these and you're thinking like, oh, so sad for those producers, but starting out is really hard. And like, that's just part of the process of getting into this industry or any industry. Like you learn from getting shot down and you will get through it and you will get better because of that process and everything will be fine. Um, But I wanna just take a minute and think about what happens when we decide that all of these kinds of moments are totally fine. What is the thing that we lose? Like, I feel like I could totally make a strange audio poem essay about my experience or about experiences of like queer and trans people in the healthcare system. Totally. I have so much information, so much lived experience. But like the way that I would tell that story, I think is is a risk, is a huge risk for any sort of traditional institution to take on. What I was worried that I couldn't pull off changed from I was worried that I couldn't make something that was like gonna make somebody cry or make somebody feel something that they'd never felt before to like, how am I going to make something at all that someone is going to pay me for? I literally know that it is impossible to make radio that's coming from my heart and also makes money, I think. Okay, two things that I think are true. If we want to make stories that sound new, that will allow our industry to grow and change, People with untrained or less trained voices are the people who are most well-equipped to figure out how to do that. People who haven't already learned, like, this is how you introduce a character, or this is the cadence you should use, or this is good tape and this is bad tape. And number two, if we don't support people when they are in the early stages of developing their own voices, they will lose the ability to make work that really sounds like them. Somebody gave me this advice when I hadn't started even really making stories for myself at all, that like, as soon as I could, I should make a thing that only I could ever make, that no one was giving me permission to make. Because it's, you know, very quickly, if I started getting permission to make things from people, then those things would be shaped by the permission so deeply that I would never really know what it was that I could make that no one else could make. That's a piece of advice that I really, really love. I think it's so important. Um, But I also know that most of the time in our industry, working without permission ends up meaning working without support. Like, I have seen the people I'm most inspired by in radio stand on this stage and talk about how they push the sound of the industry forward by, like, making their dream project for free on the side or with no feedback. And I know that the people I most want to hear original ideas from don't have the spare time or money or like super extreme sense of self-confidence to make the work that they really want to make without support. Right now, no emerging producer I know feels like they have the space or the resources to develop their own voice. Like really not a single one in any kind of sustainable way. And I do think I have to say like, When I was talking to all these people for this talk, over and over again, they said, 
I get it. Like, if I were an editor, probably I would not listen to my weird ideas seriously either. Like, editors have a lot to worry about. I'm super inexperienced. They need to worry about budgets and deadlines and advertisers. Like, it's a lot. Um, and that's, I think that's all really true. But what I want to propose is that all of us also worry a little more about this. If we don't make space for emerging producers to develop their own voices, we will lose those voices. They'll either leave, like they will go away. People will drop out of our industry and find other creative outlets where their ideas are actually valued. It's crazy that like, I'm probably not gonna work in radio considering it's like all I really wanna do. Other people will stick and they'll keep making radio, but they will get trained out of their own unique instincts for how to tell stories. And when I think about what another five or 10 or 20 years of that will mean, it's not only that all these brilliant people will be gone or squished into boxes, but it's that the potential of our industry and what we can make will have been totally undermined. I think there are a lot of big and small ways to fix this problem from like teeny tiny, how do you have conversations every day at work ways to like radical redistribution of resources. I have a lot of ideas. Uh, if you want to start an emerging producers fund, talk to me about it. Uh, I don't have time to talk about solutions right now. But I think that one place that all of us can start is just listening really, really carefully to the hopes and the dreams and the ambitions and the weird secret ideas of all the emerging producers around us. Taking them seriously and treating them as the incredibly valuable things that they are. Thank you. Hi, my name is Janie Williams, and I made an audio documentary series called This Happened. I made this podcast because of a conversation I had with a close friend, Nicole. One day, just hanging out, Nicole brought up the man who had sexually assaulted me when I was 23 years old. We had all been close friends. Nicole had kept in touch with this man over the years, the one who assaulted me. And now she was feeling out what I would think about him being invited somewhere where I would be. I said, yeah, but Nicole, he sexually assaulted me, remember? And she said, yeah, but he didn't really do anything, did he? I think everyone can agree this is a really weird thing to say. But to me, it was also the beginning of an answer to a question that had been with me for so long. And that question was, what could possibly explain my friend's kind of indifference to the news that I had been sexually assaulted by someone they knew? And when I say friends here, I mean friends plural. Me and Nicole and the man who assaulted me were part of a larger group of friends that was very close. And everyone had this sort of non-reaction to the news of the assault. I wanted to know why that was. So I bought a cheap Sony recorder, and I asked them. In making the podcast, I wove large chunks of that interview tape in with sparse narration. I'm going to talk about how the choice to keep the interviews long got me thinking about the way we tell stories 
But first, I need you to listen. In the tape I'm about to play, my friend Anthony has just referred to the sexual assault as a misunderstanding. Okay, let me just No, but it's not about But like just saying. let me just let me let's just take it down a second. All right. Do you believe what I'm saying to you right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Like So if all that happened that I said happened, what could he what could he misunderstand or misinterpret about that? What part of a girl being completely um, unable to move and function and you sexually molesting her while she says, no, stop, and you, while you're doing that, saying over and over again, we will never be friends. How, how do you think he could think there was a misunderstanding? It wasn't about whether or not he thought it was a misunderstanding. It was about the fact that he's just still not accountable. Right. And I, I just accepted I, that. I believe that. I believe that he thinks he's not accountable. But that's something different than there being a misunderstanding. Right, but I think his way of, of not being accountable is referring to it as a misunderstanding. You know what I mean? Like, I believe that he says that to you. I don't believe he believes it's a misunderstanding. I, I believe... I believe that you're probably right. Um, again, like this is an area that I didn't really dive into just for my own sort of like sake. So many of us in this room may already know the definition of rape culture. Some examples of rape culture most people can think of are asking a victim of assault what she was wearing or how much she had to drink. Most likely, those of us in this room know not to do these things. So we may be tempted to think that the people that do do these things are the misogynists, that they are other. But creating this happened, the podcast, taught me to see it differently. When I decided to interview my friends, I didn't know the project was going to be about rape culture because my friends are feminists. So in the interviews, I'm asking really open questions. I asked my friend Anthony what he thought when he read a detailed account of the assault I'd published on Facebook. And this is what comes out. It, uh, you know, I think I only read it once because I, I don't think I could have imagined reading it again. It was pretty intense. I feel like I, I, I always find like the victim and the perpetrator somehow. I remember feeling really bad for you and then also felt bad for Matt. I asked my mom about her thoughts when she first learned of the assault. I just thought he, but he carried that, that really, really, really damaged child with him. So in this, even in that moment where I was so hurting for what you went through and so angry for how he put, you know, as you described it, manipulated people against you and did all the classic things, furious, angry, so relieved that you had stood up and said something. I was thinking, God, that poor ruined baby child. One after the other, my friends and my mother reveal what was going on in their heads. And I can't help but notice some reoccurring themes. Pity for the perpetrator. 
There was also judgment of me for coming forward about the assault. Many friends were able to dismiss, dismiss the assault as a misunderstanding, and absolutely nobody was talking about it, which kind of made it disappear. And like to me, it's just like in an instance like this, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to discuss it with anybody else because it's not, I wasn't part of it. It's, it's your experience. It's your suffering. What do you think would have happened if you did talk about it with other people in the social group? I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, it was just like, I mean, when it first was said, Malia and him were really good friends. I couldn't have talked to Malia about it, you know. Why not? I just... I didn't want to hear what she was going to say if it was going to be in defense of him. You know, and once he put it on Facebook, again, I didn't want it to, I didn't want to hear if it was going to be judge, judgment on it. If there had been judgment on it. Judgment on you. Yeah. If there had been judgment on me, w could that not have been an opportunity? To... To say to this is what it is for me, yeah. It's not that no one ever stood up for you, Janie. That's that's not. How could they stand up for you? They weren't even talking no, about it. No, but what I'm saying is just like they are saying these things that, when voiced and reflected on, can be recognized as contributing to a culture that normalizes and covers up sexual assault. But for me, it is also clear that at the time they were not at all aware that this is what they were doing. Their responses came naturally, and in the context of the society that they were acting within, they were perfectly normal responses. They could understand what rape culture was and be against it ideologically, and at the same time, fail to recognize it when confronted with it in their real lives, when things were a bit more complex, when confronting rape culture meant they had something to lose and nothing to gain. Doing these interviews and then listening to them over and over for the podcast was incredibly painful. It hurt to know that that feeling I had had all along, that my friends and family had given little to no thought about me in all of this, was correct. But hearing what my friends had been thinking was disquieting for another reason. I realized I had reacted the same to my own assault and for the same reasons. I was in denial and kept the assault a secret for many years. I wanted to avoid drama, felt the urge to protect my perpetrator, and belittled the seriousness of the assault and the damage it did to me. Learning why my friends reacted the way they did was painful, but along with the hurt came this aha. Because suddenly this thing that had been completely in the dark and really impossible for me to understand was clear as day. These were the thoughts that, been, that had been going on in their heads. This explained their behavior. And really, it wasn't hard to understand at all. This was rape culture. And this was important because I could see for the first time the way rape culture could be inside of someone without their knowledge or consent. It was inside my friends. It was inside me. So here's the rub. I don't expect a couple of short clips and me standing here saying to you, rape culture is inside us all, will convince you of that. To really know some things, they have to get into your bones. In our field of audio production, 
common assumptions about listeners' attention spans and average commute times dictate the way many stories are told. And the 25-minute podcast that cuts quickly and masterfully between interview tape and narration is undeniably gratifying. But consider for a moment that in the name of tight editing, something vital could be lost. For me and for others who have listened, the insidious nature of rape culture came through in the interviews. And it came especially from the conversations that were allowed to breathe, from the tape that went on too long and became uncomfortable. It came from the circling around things and the fumbling for words, from the really long silences and the excuses that went on forever but explained nothing and the points that I made again and again that never got through. If I had cut the interviews into neat clips followed by exposition, the story could have been told in your average commute time. But I didn't want it to feel neat and tidy because that's not what the experience was. And it was the experience of those conversations more than the content of what was said that had something to teach. Our audiences may be trained to expect quick cuts, brief pauses, and narrative arcs that wrap up neatly, but we can retrain them. And I think that we should. Thank you. Uh, I'm James Kim, and um, it's kind of weird standing up here because I was a volunteer three years ago. So, kind of a jump. It's kind of crazy. Um, I've been in podcasting and radio for about seven years now, um, on and off. And I say on and off because I actually quit the industry in 2013. Um, I just finished two internships, one national show and one local show. And after they were done, I could not find a job. No freelance gigs, no fill-in work, no temp, just nothing. So because I'm from Los Angeles, I ended up working in reality television. <laughs> and um, I started off as a post-production assistant, which was basically a desk job where I just looked at appearance releases all day and just um, made sure the info was all right. And it was pretty mindless. And they allowed us to put on headphones and listen to whatever we wanted while we were working. And my boss suggested uh, this website called Listen to a Movie. And somebody uploaded all these films online and just their MP3s, so stuff like The Shining and Devil Wars Prada and Shaun of the Dead, which is pretty awesome. And, and like all of a sudden, as I'm like listening to this audio and without the visuals, I start to really pay attention to the sound and how it's helping tell the story. And... Um, I kind of want to play an example. Uh, it's from the film, the horror movie, and because it's Halloween, um, from Insidious. I came today because last night I had a dream about this place. I was in this house, but it was late at night. I was afraid. I went into your bedroom, but you were both asleep. 
I knew I was asleep in the dream, but I could feel that someone was awake in the house. I went into Dalton's room. standing there in the corner. I asked it, who are you? And it said, it was a visitor. I said, what do you want? It said, Dalton. still hear that voice. What? What? It's here. I was hoping some of you were gonna like jump out of your seat, but I guess that didn't work. But I fucking love jump scares because it's one of like the few moments in film that takes sound design and, and music front and center. And um, it's the main reason why you just jump out of your seat. Um, but in that clip, there's so much that the sound design is kind of doing. From like the ambi that's changing to this low wind sound to signify that it's a dream, to like the clock sound that's kind of complementing it and adding personality to that dream, to even the silence right before that jump scare. And I kind of wish that podcasts would use more of those kinds of techniques. Um, you know, another kind of example is, is through music. There's so many artists who play with the audio medium from Billie Eilish and how she uses vocal effects to mimic subwoofers in the song Zanny, or how Kendrick Lamar uses audio skits that sound like they're recorded on a tape recorder, and then he blends these skits with his music uh, to tell this beautiful narrative story in his album Good Kid Mad City. And then there's FKA Twigs, who just, for me, takes her music to this surreal place. It's like she's stretching out that last musical phrase and adding all these effects. And it just makes that one moment in the song just surreal and artful. And we should be treating podcasts like musicians treat their songs, like a piece of art, taking chances, breaking form, and trying to create something new. And one way to do that in our medium is to look for inspiration in an unexpected place. Oh. I should have put an adult content sensor before I played that, but porn, it's very intimate and it's usually performed behind closed doors, 
just two people and maybe more if that's your jam. Um, but they're connecting on a raw and deep level. And yet there's these sites like Pornhub where you have access to these moments and you get an insight where you can listen to people doing this very private act and hear people in their most vulnerable and intimate state. And we should just seriously stop only listening to podcasts for inspiration. And when you kind of do that, you're going to sound up like This American Life or Reply All or Serial. And honestly, the reason why those shows are groundbreaking is because they look outside of the norms of podcasting. Um, that's kind of what I tried to do when I made this independent fiction podcast called Moonface. Uh, oh, <laughs> thanks. Thank you, that's crazy. Um, I, and I, I was influenced by the way that film uses sound design to tell a story. Want anything to drink? Um, just water. You want some poppers? Uh, yeah, well, okay. You don't have to. Have you tried them before? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll just, I'll take a hit. fiction podcast I made was me putting my heart on my sleeve. And it was almost kind of like a rebellion to one of the worst pieces of advice I ever got. And someone told me that you should never put yourself in your own story, especially if you consider yourself a journalist. You should never make the story about you. Fucking bullshit. Total bullshit. Total fucking bullshit. Some of the best stories are when people turn the mic on themselves. Like when James C. Green did a story about his Apple Watch and how it saved his life. Cher Mashihi's story about refusing to conform to cultural standards and how that caused a tear in a relationship with her mom. Sayer Cavedo recording his breakup and it's just honest and real and just crazy. I think it's incredibly risky to do a story about yourself. There's that fear of embarrassment when you're about to release it. You're opening up yourself to judgment. 
and you're being honest about who you are and your experiences. And it's just terrifying to let strangers listen to it and then also critique it. I had that fear when I was releasing Moonface. It was a passion project of mine. I put my whole self in that project. And I actually didn't even want to release it because I was afraid of what people would think. But see, that feeling is so damn important when you're making something. It means that you're passionate about what you're making, you care, and that you're stepping outside of your comfort zone trying something new. And honestly, that risk is what we need to do more of in this industry. So much of what is out there in podcasts is being made to be hit a download number or like an ad revenue. We should be taking more risk and you should feel uncomfortable when you're about to release something. But it's just not on creators to be taking these risks. It's also on the people who have power to hire creators, to say yes or no to their ideas, to be taking chances on people who are quote unquote unproven. This is my third time here at Third Coast. And there are some people who I met three years ago who are still freelancers, fill-ins, temps, who are still part-time, who still don't have health benefits, who still have to have two, three, four side hustles because nobody wants to offer them a full-time job. And that is just not okay. And it's sad that it's so damn common. And it's up to the people in charge of these public radio stations and podcast companies, the people in upper management who have the power to make decisions, to take a chance on people, to hire people who are passionate but can't get their foot in the door. Don't let them leave this industry because they can't afford it or because they don't have friends to recommend them for a job or because they didn't graduate from a prestigious college. Because honestly, I had none of that, which is why I quit radio in the first place. So if you're in this room and you have the high, if you have the power to hire people or green light ideas, or if you're in this room and you're feeling stuck and feeling like you've just been making the same thing over and over again, take a step back, breathe, and just take a fucking risk. Thanks.